Hello, and thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into anything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we're your hosts. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpont. Good day to you, sir. Uh, it's been so long since we recorded the last episode, I can't remember if that was a new introduction or not. <laughs> Minor edits, but it Minor has edit. been a long time. Uh, uh, well, that's because everyone, I don't think it's actually been mentioned on air, but Adam has a new job, so... He's been very busy. Um, I guess we've probably all been busy, but he's been particularly busy for the last few weeks. Well, we'll have to dive into your new gig uh, at some point in an episode. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, that's where we've been. So I, I now pretend to be a paleoimmunologist on this show, really. Right, yeah. <laughs> we have even <laughs> less credentials to run this podcast. <laughs> but that's okay because... The, the recording medium is free and uh, putting it out on the internet is f- almost free. So I think we keep going with this. Yeah, continue to pretend that we know what we're talking about. Exactly. Especially with episodes like today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what are we going to talk about? What is next in our small picture arc? Uh, so dear listeners, you may remember <laughs> way back when we... Um, Last recorded, we were still in the middle of an arc that we're calling the small picture, where we're focusing on individual paleo indicators in some detail. And today we're, we're going to continue with a look at POPs, or persistent organic pollutants, or contaminants, or environmental tracers, or basically things that Josh saw when he was in Jules's lab at the University of Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Saw did not work with... Uh, many of them <laughs> personally myself, but, um, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one that it's, um, it was even hard. I mean, we knew what we kind of wanted to include into this episode, but it's hard to give it a name or to summarize what all of them are. Are they all contaminants? Mm, mostly, but some of them are environmental tracers and not really contaminants per se. They're more indicative of contamination. Are they pollutants? Again, kind of similar to the idea of contaminants. And we can talk about what those terms might mean separately. So it's hard to put them all together, but they're broadly, we're thinking about organic, really pushing into the organic chemistry methodology uh, that is still being extracted from lake sediments. So we're not talking about, I mean, a lot of these techniques can be used in the water column and in media, like um, organisms, including some of the organisms we talked about. We're primarily thinking about things we're going to be extracting from sediments. So it's still paleolimnology, just a little bit different. And, and lots of different stuff falls under the umbrella term of organic pollutants before you even start getting into slicing and dicing in various different ways. So there are lots of Wikipedias to check <laughs> um, while preparing for this episode. But fortunately, um, there's also uh, in Deeper Book 18, uh, which is on trends in pollution, uh, Chapter 8 gives a pretty good summary of the kind of things that we're talking about. Um, so if you'd like a copy of this book, just click our affiliate link for details. And Why don't we have Jenny on here? She wrote the chapter. Why is it, oh, it's like it's, too, <laughs> it's past her bedtime. Oh, it's going to get it right now. Put her on yeah, the spot. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy that it came out in 2015. I remember very clearly the writing of that chapter. Yeah, 
time flies. But um, yeah, and that that kind of is incorporating a bunch of these different things. And, and we'll focus, and that chapter does too, focus very much on the techniques that, that were done in, in the Blade Lab because that's where, well, Jules is one of the authors on uh, the chapter and where Jenny was a postdoc when she wrote it. And, and so we'll, we'll focus a little bit on, on those kind of same things. Okay, so maybe you'll help me define some terms because I'm very much out of my depth here. So contaminants versus pollutants, those are words that are often used interchangeably. Are they interchangeable? I think so. I think from, from the perspectives we're thinking of, that that's reasonable. They're things that are elevated above baseline uh, concentrations in the environment. Yeah, I think, I think hmm. you can use them interchangeably. There may be very strict definitions in a chemical sense, but from the perspective of understanding an, an ecosystem's change or response, I think that works that way. Okay. How about toxicants versus toxins? Yeah, no, that, so this is a, an important one that, that is not the same and a, a commonly uh, misused one in media and, and even in textbooks sometimes. A toxin is something that's made by an animal, so uh, some, a, a product that is produced by an organism, whereas a toxicant is any sort of toxic substance, either man-made or natural. So a toxin is a toxicant, but not the other way around. Okay. And then, um, now I'm going to kind of like show my ignorance here. So toxin versus poison, what's the difference in those? Uh, I think a, a poison can be, can, it doesn't have to be man-made. So I think poison would be more similar to contaminant or pollutant, going back to those those things, but that are naturally deleterious to, to humans in particular. Okay. All right. So don't quote gone. me on that one. Uh, we didn't work with a lot of poisons <laughs> in the Blay Lab, so don't, okay. don't All right. quote me there, but uh, All right. that, so this is that getting... sounds like it to me. Off the rails very quickly, so maybe we should just make a list. So <laughs> okay, what exactly are we talking what about? What are we talking about? Okay, what, where should we start? Let's start with one that actually doesn't fit, and that's mercury. <laughs> um, and that's, that's not an uh, organic contaminant. Uh, well, you know, it can be, at least a, a semi-organic one. So we will talk a little bit about mercury because it is an interesting one. It's a metal, but it also forms these organometallic compounds like methyl mercury that most people have heard of and so it, it kind of gets a place in the contaminant discussion in literature uh, we also have a broad group not any one compound and a lot of times we're talking about a group of compounds that are classified as persistent organic pollutants so things like pcbs and ddt and its breakdown products so, so those would be the top of the pops, really? Ah, the top of the pops, yes. There's the, there's the episode title for us. Um, so these are synthetic. That's one of the interesting things to think about. Is there natural sources or are they entirely man-made? And generally they have some sort of halogen or chlorine in particular in their structure. And, and we know that those are, are pretty reactive, um, but also can be really persistent because when they form strong bonds, they tend to, to keep them. Okay. Uh, BFRs. What are BFRs? BFRs are brominated flame retardants and another class of compounds found in all sorts of stuff, but often used to, as it, the name suggests, make things less flammable, personal products. So these are synthetic compounds, except no chlorine, but we've got bromine this time. Okay. Uh, 
PFAs. Another big group. Um, and again, change out that halogen to a fluorine. So we have perfluoroalkyl, and, and sometimes you might see PFOAs or a few other variations on that uh, substances. Another group of synthetic uh, compounds, very common, some of them with definite contaminant potential. Okay. Uh, also on our list, we've got PACs and PAHs. So here's the interesting comparison I was talking about. No, uh, the, the last three POPs, fluorominated compounds and uh, fluorinated compounds are synthetic. On the other hand, PACs, uh, which is a, a group that includes PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or compounds, where there's things other than just carbon and hydrogen in there, like, um, like sulfur, uh, have natural sources. They're produced by burning things uh, broadly or the, the slow breakdown of organic matter. And some of those uh, production events are, are accelerated or occur because of humans and others are just natural. Okay. Um, so we end kind of our um, alphabet soup here. We also have fecal sterols on the list. Yep. Boop. And, uh, and or other things. That's the fecal part. But sterols and sandals are a, a class of uh, compounds, things like hormones and, and other compounds in, produced by organisms, plants, animals, uh, fungi, I believe. Uh, that Now we're talking about more of a tracer. The sterols and themselves are not going to be contaminants, but they can tell you maybe about contamination such as fecal matter. Okay. And finally, uh, personal care products. Man, like everything else. Uh, and, and I guess you could put pharmaceuticals in there too. So pharmaceutically active compounds and personal care products are, are things that uh, are not contaminants. Well, they're not, they're not poisonous to humans in sort of the abundances that they should be taken. Obviously, everything is a poison if you take enough of it. Um, but uh, when you're using them for shampoo and detergents and all those different things, uh, they are are part of our everyday lives, and that includes getting rid of them, washing them down the drain, excreting them into the the, the sewer system, and there's the potential for those to have uh, ramifications for other parts of the the ecosystem, even if they're not poisonous to humans. Okay. Okay, I'm done. So, that was good. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> all right, this is my list. It's everything all I know right. about all of them. See y'all later. <laughs> okay. So. So essentially, we're talking about traces of pollution slash contamination in the ecosystem. Um, there are some methodological similarities between uh, studying all of these groups of compounds um, due to similarities in structure between them and hydrophobicity that allow them to persist in the environment for a long time. Um, but really, the details um, are quite different and really only seem like a cohesive group because we're biologists trying to talk about organic chemistry right now. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. That was one of the things I noticed the most going into even just stepping my toe into that uh, that world a little bit is that compounds that, that we just listed off as if they were you know the same kind of thing have very different chemistries. They have very different methodologies associated with them as different as comparing 
easily as different as comparing diatoms from cladocera, from coronamids, maybe even more so like thinking about the pollen versus coronamid kind of differences. Um, but they, they do seem a little bit similar because you can't actually see any of them. You know, you're working with material that uh, is, is at the chemical level. And so there, there is a, uh, I don't know, if, if you're not used to that, if you didn't do a lot of organic chemistry, even coming into it and, and trying to do the methodology, it's, it's a bit of a daunting uh, learning curve, but an interesting one. I really enjoyed my, my time doing that stuff. Organic chemistry three is actually why I'm not a biochemist right now. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the one that broke the, me. The second half of <laughs> organic chemistry is is one reason that I, uh, yeah, went into the ecology environment. Yeah, but that was but, the synthesis uh, part. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the first part that was more about the the understanding of the nature of organic molecules and reaction stuff. The, the synthesis part I, I found really challenging. Yeah. But on a very basic level, uh, the mythology, as you mentioned, is uh, very chemistry-based and involves isolating these materials from the sediments with some kind of solvent extraction, then go through some sort of cleaning up procedure to ensure only the type of molecule that you're interested in is, is what remains, and then you measure them with gas chromatography mass spectroscopy. Yeah, so I mean, not really that different than than any of the bioindicators that we've talked about. You need to get them out of the sediment and clean up so all you have left is the thing you want to measure, uh, except you're not doing the measuring with your eyes, you're doing it with some sort of instrument. And the instrument, because you're talking about very minor differences to, at the chemical level, sometimes the you know, difference between different PAH compounds is maybe one carbon, two hydrogen kind of masses. Um, they have to be very, very clean. And uh, the instruments then have to be very, very sensitive. And uh, and those instruments exist. It's an expensive uh, instrument, heavy type of paleolimnology compared to, I mean, the microscopes are incredibly expensive, but you, you could buy several for the price of a GCMS and uh, and all of the trimmings that go along with it. So yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and then because you can't look at what you're actually isolating, um, in order to have some idea of what you're measuring, your equivalent of like your taxonomic key, I guess, then it would be the standards of specific materials, and that you're yep. comparing the, you know, the molecular weights. Or um, I'm, I'm lost for the name of the graph that comes out, and like when you're yeah, they're like the retention time on the stuff. yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing is that you, you, most people aren't walking around sprinkling little bits of diatom and cladocera into their own samples, but because we're talking about such minute concentrations, nanograms uh, of weight, and for some things, these these things are everywhere. You know, if you go out and and you're near somebody who's having a, a cigarette or something, or you know you you are even you're near cars that have lots of exhaust and things like that, you can, you can easily contaminate samples with some things uh, like PAHs in particular and personal care products even more so. So there has to be a lot of um, thinking about QA, QC, but from a, a lab perspective, from a field perspective, make sure all of your 
a water is clean because if your water is contaminated that you're using to dilute your sample or clean your trays when you're sectioning, all of these things can introduce contamination. So you have to be able to make sure that what you're measuring is it, what's actually in the environment in the sediments. Uh, and there are there's very strict triplicate kind of analyses and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of QA QC that's needed in order to make sure because you can't count you can't count them. You know you have to you have to assume what you're measuring is real. Okay. And then your end result after you're going through this whole process, I guess, is a depth profile of the concentration of the contaminant through time. That's right. Yep. And uh, and that can be measured generally in one of two ways. It could be as a, a un per unit mass of sediment, so per gram, usually per gram of uh, dry weight or some sort of mass correction to get rid of the water part, or it can be corrected to some other value. And it's very common to correct to the amount of organic matter. So you would calculate the, or the organic carbon more so than organic matter, because it's really the carbon, organic carbon that these things are being uh, attached to and associated with. So you would run an elemental uh, analysis uh, on a total organic carbon concentration uh, measurement. Same way you would get like total nitrogen um, first step to isotopes, which we'll talk about next week, I think, or next time, <laughs> certainly not in a week. Um, and then you would correct that to the amount of organic carbon. Okay. And then I guess as an outsider looking in, one last question I would have here as having read some of the papers but never having any actual um, connection to the lab work, uh, coming from a background of spending huge amounts of time picking chronomids or sifting through many, many clodosterin slides. How time-intensive a uh, process is this? Is this something that you can bang through lots of cores quickly or is the QAQC kind of like eating up? Like, How does it really compare in terms of um, you know, generating data and what in sort of volume? Or are you running the yeah. same core for a jillion different things? And like, how does it work on that kind of mechanical level? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, so I, I would say the the two things that that are uh, there's two things that can can really slow you down or, or are important that that you may take time doing. One is if there's not a well developed method. So if it's not something that's commonly uh, analyzed, so there's not a an EPA, an Environmental Protection Agency method for. So there are developed methods for some of these contaminants. Uh, for all analyses, and you may need to tweak them very slightly, but you know how to get them out of the sediment and isolate them. That's helpful. If there isn't one, so there was some uh, a student working on personal care product stuff in uh, the Blay Lab when when we were there, and there wasn't really a method for that, and it took them a very long time to sort out how to get them out. Uh, that can take a long time. And even some of our, my own stuff, we, we weren't working in sediments, we were working in um, these sampling devices that we put out. And it wasn't a problem of extracting the uh, PAHs, it was about getting a really clean sample because the PAHs were in an, a, a, an oil, like a it was called trialine. And we were getting a lot of PAHs, but also a lot of contamination. So you can't put that into the GC or wreck it. So it was a, a lot of work to, to develop that cleaning technique. So really method development takes a long time. Getting your own method down and, and knowing that you're doing a good job because there is some, a lot of skill to good um, like extraction, good column preparation, all of those things can also take a lot of time. Once you do that, 
you can work through samples quite quickly. They're long days, um, but you can work through a number. You could do you know six or eight samples uh, on a good long day, and then they'd be done and ready to go into the instrument. And an instrument can run you know overnight, can run a huge run of them. So there's a lot of front loaded uh, learning and development, and then you can you can hammer out some samples pretty quickly after that for most of the analyses. Cool stuff. Yeah, it's quite different. You know, it's not like very consistent, like microscope work. You, you do a big lab run and then bah, 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 you work through the scope at a really consistent pace once you've got it down. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that our audience is an expert in, uh, are all experts in, in the uh, um, methodology, uh, how about the next segment we start going through the list and seeing what their tracers of? Sounds good. Do you want to throw it to an ad first? Yeah. All right. We'll be right back after this ad. Today's episode is brought to you by the audiobook sensation currently sweeping the download charts. Nods are one of my passions, and so is not chopping down trees, which is why I'm such a big fan of Granny Thienpont's audiobook of knots. 11 years of painstaking research have resulted in more than 47 hours of clear step-by-step instructions of comprehensive knot knowledge from the simple to the sublime. Reef knots, sheep shanks, round, turn, interlocking shrouds, and more are all narrated from both a right and left-handed perspective. It makes a great gift this festive season for all the naughty and nice paleolimnologists in your life. Granny Thienpon's Audiobook of Knots, available in good audiobook stores everywhere. So you guys know those ads are all jokes, right? We're not, we're not, I'm not actually settling <laughs> audiobooks of knots. Damn, I wish we were though. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant idea myself. Uh, a brilliant idea. All uh, right. If I had the time, I, I probably, probably would. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I could just think now that everyone's starting to commute again, there's going to be lot, lots of like desire for listening to the soothing tones of the rabbit comes out of the hole That's and right. around the tree and back down the hole. <laughs> now for the left-handed option, the rabbit the comes, rabbit out, comes of the out, hole. out of the hole. <laughs> <laughs> Holding the rope in your right hand, the rabbit comes out of the hole. <clears throat> oh. All right, enough silliness. Let's talk about some environmental tracers. Yes, let's do okay. that. So um, once you've done all your organic chemistry, you have your printout, you have your depth profile of concentration through time. Um, I'm assuming because so many of these are hydrophobic um, molecules that mobility is not an issue very often. Yeah, That's a good question too. Yeah, they're pretty faithful uh, in the sediments. Uh some that you wouldn't measure, like methylmercury, doesn't you can't really measure in sediments because it moves really well. But the organic molecules, yeah, they they tend to bind to uh, to organic matter in the sediments and, and be fairly stable in the sediment core. You don't want there's some things you have to be careful of once you've taken the core. You don't want to expose them to a lot of heat or light. Um, cold and dark, frozen and uh, dark is is the best place for the sediments after they've left the lake, but in the sediment core profile. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay. So uh, let's attack the list that we uh, laid out in segment one. Um, so what are these things traces of, beginning with mercury and the stereotypical Mad Hatter um, contaminant? 
Right. So again, it's not, it's not the same. It, all the things we were talking about, about sample prep and uh, extraction and all those things don't really apply to total mercury in the sediments, which is what's primarily being uh, measured, the total amount of mercury. Um, it's a metal and it has different uh, energy levels at different forms. There can be elemental mercury, inorganic mercury, um, and neither of those are particularly problematic from a biology perspective. So from a contaminant perspective, it's when it's methylated by bacteria, so it becomes an organometallic compound, that it becomes quite problematic. And that's a bioaccumulating and biomagnifying compound that has some pretty deleterious impacts on organisms broadly, including humans. And that's that Mad Hatter, you know, the character from... Alice in Wonderland, uh, and the which is based on the idea that that people who felted hats because they use mercury. And if you go and Google some of these pictures, maybe I, we'll get Adam to put a couple in the uh, in the show notes. Just seeing them in in vats of like mercury vapor, it's no wonder they went insane from taking that much mercury in. Um, but but in a more modern perspective, we are thinking about the movement of mercury around the planet. And then when it gets to a location, it tends to be methylated. Methyl mercury doesn't move very far, but elemental mer mercury is, is gaseous and it can move around the atmosphere quite easily. And the main sources, uh, sometimes they can be localized and, and there are some really interesting examples of using mercury to track uh, flooding because when soils are flooded, there's a tendency for mercury bound in the, the earth to be released to the water column, then methylated, and then potentially have impacts on fish and organisms. Uh, but you can also measure like large sources of, of mercury because it transports a long, relatively long distance. It'll accumulate in the sediments and you can measure those for like point sources. So, where, so what would like big point sources of mercury be? Uh, industry, so combustion of fossil fuels that uh, that may have mercury, I, I don't want to say contamination, but like in the fossil fuels, there's contaminated with mercury. Um, the combustion of that, historically, mercury has been used, well, mercury is a, a really good uh, or a compound for forming amalgams with other metals. Uh, and one that it really likes to amalgamate to is gold. And gold is pretty valuable. And so what you would do is you would put the gold into the mercury. They form an amalgam to get it out of its, its like contamination. And then you heat it to drive off the mercury because gold doesn't boil particularly easily. And you're left with a nice sample of gold and a lot of mercury vapor in the atmosphere. Uh, and that's been used historically, but large-scale gold operations don't do that anymore. But small-scale ones still do. So, so artisanal gold mining. So, and so this is something I only had not really heard about until we were talking about the show. So, like, is artisanal gold mining booming? Like, is it on the yeah, upswing? Yeah, yeah, it is because, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, from a global source, it it fossil fuel combustion and artisanal gold mining teeter back and forth as which is number one and number two. Like, it depends on how much of each is going on, but they're, they're both quite large sources okay. relative to each other. Yeah. So That's it is, it is a big concern. And so, yeah. So and then, then it transports everywhere. 
Yeah, and so once you have that transportation, um, it enters the food web via uh, bacteria or wetlands, and so then that obviously, um, you know, the large scale flooding associated with hydroelectric dams is probably a um, big source or a big, um, I guess, point of research interest. From a Historically, point it has of view. been. Yeah, there was some really interesting work in Canada because we had obviously a lot of hydro generation, and in the seventies and eighties when we were building a lot of large scale dams, there was work at ELA on uh, on flooding potential, and there's some been some stuff on on natural flooding, like um, uh, when beavers impound waterways they're doing the same thing just at smaller scale and then there is an uptick in in mercury release from the soil so that's not stuff that's being transported globally that's stuff that was in the environment mm -hmm. that's then coming yeah. into the water column yeah so mercury is an interesting one it's like it uses a totally different instrument it has like we in in the jenny's lab she has a direct mercury analyzer and it actually works the same way it has a, it actually works the opposite as a gold Amalgamation, so it uses a, a it uses gold to <laughs> to bring the, the mercury out of the sample, and uh, and yeah, so it's, it's funny, but it's not really the same as all the other organic contaminants. But it kind of behaves a bit like one. Okay, all right. So let's let's move on to those then. So persistent organic pollutants. Um, many of them are uh, banned because they are toxic. Yep, the um, pollutants. Yeah. Um, they're easily transported. They have they're toxic to um, the broader ecosystem, not just to human health. So impacting ecosystems' health, and there are modern alternatives to their use. But again, the, the persistence uh, they're still they're still out there because they're out there bounce particles, and then because of that, um, you know, and you're able to track them through time and relate them to changes in other things in the ecosystem. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things that in the, I guess, like post-war era, maybe a little before that, but industrial chemists got, you know, a lot of new compounds were developed. So these synthetic compounds, as we learned all sorts of stuff about chemistry, um, but uh, a fair few of them turned out to be not so great for the environment. Some of them are amazing at the things they do, but at their intended purpose, DDT is a great pesticide. Um and not incredibly harmful to humans either, which is something that that's uh, kind of nice in 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 compounds you're going to spray widely. But from an ecosystem perspective, it it can be much much more damaging to other things that aren't as large as us. Um, and yeah, so I I think most of the the POPs broadly, like the PCBs, etc., we've uh, we've figured out that we can. We can do the same thing with something that's not so persistent in the environment, that isn't so long-lived, that does break down naturally under photo properties. And some of these things definitely get into the atmosphere and have sort of some of those atmospheric problems, like the not the CFCs and things like that that most people are familiar with, with the um, potential impact on the ozone layer and that kind of stuff. They're all kind of in this broad class of organic compounds that, that chemists dreamed up and, and then we used in huge quantities. Yeah, and, and in some cases uh, very intensely. So like the PCBs um, that were used in 
uh, electric transformers. Um, we're using Cold War radar installations up in in the Arctic to where where they have the you know the early warning systems for like bombers coming across the Arctic, um, and so there's lots of that stuff that's just been left up there and abandoned or largely in some ways buried. Um, but I guess going forward, there's going to be a lot of interest um, in terms of the mobilization as uh, permafrost thaws up there and things that they thought were kind of just inert, isolated, will no longer, and that will no longer be the case going forward. Yeah, and there, there may not have been a huge impetus to reclaim sites. Like, there's not much around some of them. A lot of the do sites were in towns, hamlets uh, in the different communities, especially the more low Arctic ones. Um, and they may have been reclaimed already, uh, at least the site itself, but uh, not a lot on, on how far that spread into the, into the environment, into the receiving waters, uh, even in the soils outside of the actual installations. And, the, and they definitely, I mean, you're in a pristine, relatively pristine environment in those locations. So uh, even if the concentrations are lower than you might find sort of naturally in more southern locations, it still has the potential for some some pretty serious effects because there's just not uh, not the contaminant burden more generally in those areas. Yeah. And I guess one thing that's come up now, because we're talking like in terms of like uh, the questions that will be uh, answered with like sediment analyses of... Um, these contaminants is that they're all fairly recent. Um, the questions are going to be kind of a little bit different from many paleo studies in that no one's doing a Holocene level study of PCBs or DDT, <laughs> right? It's like nope. it's, nope. it's no point going ten thousand years back in his, in history. Um, you're more interested in the last couple decades. And um, yeah, you can uh, save your money. Don't buy a piston core if you're only interested in PCBs. <laughs> Um, and in air, and but it, but particularly from the point of view that um, in areas where there wouldn't be much in the way of extensive sampling programs as well, there'd be a lot of interest mm -hmm. in um, yep. um, detailing how these have changed through time. Um, and in that same broad class of, I guess, recent contaminants would be brominated flame retardants, and so these are um, used for largely different reasons or. Um, in modern day furniture and the stuff in your couch and your mattress. Um, and they will stay there largely until uh, they get released if it catches fire or is dumped into a landfill. Yep. And if it catches fire, it's, you know, meant to not that's, make it so bad. And that's kind of the point. Keep it from catching fire. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, they, they, and they continue to be used. We still use flame retardants in, in many, many uh, consumer products, uh, just maybe slightly less persistent ones. There's a switch to which compounds are used, and I really don't know that much about uh, BFR chemistry, so I couldn't give you any examples. But um, yeah, I mean, they obviously that's an important use. We don't want things to spontaneously burst into flames every time they're even close to a radiator. So there's a trade-off to be made with, with any of these, I guess. But have enough time to get out, and the, the people get out of the house, yeah. or the kids out of exactly. the, the bedroom. Like, uh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, there is, there is a, a trade-off to, to be thought of with, with some of these things. Um, but, but a shift to less persistent contamination 
is certainly a, a good step in the right direction. Yeah. And I guess, and again, we're dealing with very recent timescales of like modern industrial chemistry. So in many ways, I guess, the paleo, one paleo application, uh, paleo application uh, or que- or type of question that can be asked in this kind of study in the sediments is really uh, the effectiveness of some of these bands as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is if, um, you know, if they stay banned, I guess, kind of like yep. in the same vein as um, CFCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and what concentration are present below the surface in the sediments at these different levels. So we hopefully would see a decline towards the surface, uh, but what kind of concentrations are, are down there? What happens if dredging were done on this system or those kind of things? Yep. What are we, what are we potentially dealing with in, in the muck? Um, and that kind of goes very similar for PFAs or PFOAs, another synthetic compound, just a different halogen, not just a different, different halogen. Um, sometimes PFAs and PFOAs may not be, it may not be the end product that uh, is the, the concern. They're being used as precursors or uh, constituents in producing other industrial chemicals. A great example, I don't know which compound it is, but there are PFOAs that are a key precursor to making Teflon, which is obviously that nonstick coating that's in all sorts of stuff. Um, really great for not having your eggs stick in the morning, um, but in the process of making it, you, you know, there, there could be some some potential impact. And, and we do use some of those kind of compounds in very large quantities, so they have to be made in pretty big numbers. Okay. Um, so, so kind of changing tack again, um, or into a different group within the group, I guess. We have PACs and uh, PAHs. So um, I think this would be more familiar than the previous groups to most uh, paleo people. Paleo people who've done some sort of dabbling in contaminants um, will have seen some sort of pH data because, again, we're dealing in some ways with longer timelines here. Uh, these are not synthetic materials, so uh, I'm going to mess up the acronym here. What is it again? Polyaromatic compounds in general or polyaromatic uh, hydrocarbons specifically. Um, and uh, they have lots of natural sources in the environment in terms of, yes, we might personally on a level, um, when I hear it, I think of things like oil spills and bitumen and the oil sands, but they're also released uh, just in general um, burning of things, so forest fires um, and you know yep. the long-term records of barbecues in your general region. Um, That's right, exactly. <laughs> There's so many of them in the southern U.S. A lot yeah. of barbecue going on. Uh, yeah, but yeah, very, very different, right? And and a huge class and um, a class of compounds. I mean, so basically, if you take two benzene rings and stick them together, you get APAH. It's naphthalene. And uh, you can keep adding them and you can add other uh, carbon chain, you know, other carbon compounds. It's, they're basically ringed carbon, hydrocarbon compounds. Uh, and then they also can have constituents on them. So they can have alkyl substitutions. So you could put a CH3 or a longer 
uh, chain on them. So there are these parent compounds, those are the ones without any alkylated substitutions on them. And then there are the alkylated compounds. And they, they often can, even just that difference of more parent compounds, more alkylated compounds can tell you a little bit about where they come from in some cases. Um, uh, like the the longer term buildup of bitumen sources, so the slow breakdown of organic matter, tend to be the ones that are alkylated, not exclusively, but tend to have a, a larger proportion of alkylated bits, whereas the combustion products generally have higher amounts of the parent compounds. Um, but the, obviously the, they're, they're a mixture that's being produced. So the, the one compound that's very indicative of forest fires, at least in nor the Northern hemisphere in the boreal forest is actually an alkylated compound. So yeah, there you go. Um, but as a group, they have a really wide range of sizes, molecular weights they are often broken down into the lighter ones, the lower molecular weights and the heavier ones. And they behave very differently. They have very different um, uh, hydrophobicity or like the log KOW is sort of the value that's usually given, the octanol water partitioning coefficient. Basically how little or much is going to be in water and, and therefore the opposite of how... Um, Quickly, it will bind to things in the, in the water, like particles, and get out of the water itself. And the bigger ones tend to spend less time in the water. Effectively, they don't dissolve in water. And those are often the ones they're really worried about because they, they tend to not break down as easily and they tend to be more likely, at least as far as we know, to be potentially deleterious to human health but also environmental health. And, and they, can be, they can be pretty nasty. Like benzoapyrene is kind of the one that's used regularly as a, this is a pH that's really dangerous. It's a mutagen, it causes cancer. Um, it's found in coal tar. So uh, uh, in the like industrial, early industrial era, the 18, you know, Victorian era, um, where people were burning coal in their houses, um, it, it led to, it's thought that benzoapyrene and, and the other pHs were the driving force of the chimney sweeps carcinoma, which is a particularly nasty cancer that people in that profession were susceptible to. Okay. Um, and then uh, I guess next on the list was personal care products. So in many ways, um, this is the things that make shampoo smell like shampoo, but it strikes me, again, I have no, I've had no direct involvement with in this, but this strikes me as incredibly complicated because there, would there not be like chillings of individual chemicals all caught up in this class? Probably, yeah. Very diverse. Uh, yeah, synthetic compounds that are meant to have kind of perfume to mimic natural smells. You know, some perfumes are actually natural uh, extracts and that sort of thing, but other ones are synthetic examples to mimic those, and they could be very, very wide chemistry on them. Uh, but the the idea is that they're mimicking plant compounds in a lot of cases. Okay, and I guess there's a subset within here that are particularly worrying, and if they um, are mimicking hormones and acting as potential endocrine disruptors, and uh, when you get into that level of I guess, impact or disruption, 
they don't need to be in very high concentrations before you're seeing uh, impacts throughout the ecosystem. Or at the ecosystem yeah, and that's level. the same with yeah, that's the same with any pharmaceutically like active compound. So uh, like uh, synthetic estrogen from birth control is is the one that's usually discussed mostly because it's the one that's probably emitted into the environment in the highest concentrations um, and, and is measurable in wastewater, the, the uh, estrogen or whatever, synthetic estrogen that, uh, that comes out of, of wastewater. And, and there are studies that in large concentrations that can have some impacts on fish and, and other parts of the, orga- of the ecosystem. And that usually is an endocrine function disruption. Okay. And then, uh, I guess, fin- finally on the list, we'll be looking at uh, sterols and stanols. So uh, these are not POPs. They're naturally occurring, um, but their isolation is similar in terms of the method. I guess many of these are similar in, uh, in the method, but specifically here we're talking about um, groups of steroids that are produced either by plants, which would be the phytosterols, or animals, which would be the zoosterols or zoosterols. I'm not sure what the common pronunciation of that would be. Potato, potato, yep. Um, and, um, you know, they would be used for all sorts of biochemical and physio- physiological stuff within these organisms. Um, but the one that, you know, the, lay, the general public might be most familiar with would be cholesterol. Yep. It took me a long time to, to realize that, like, uh, the... Um uh, postdoc who was in Jules's lab who kind of brought some of these techniques. Wenhan uh, Chen, who's uh, uh, returned to China to a position there, but he always re- pronounced it cholesterol. So I, 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 and I'm not sure if that was his accent or, but I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I think that was just an emphasis that it's a sterile. And, uh, and for the longest time, I was like, I didn't realize he was talking about cholesterol. And then, of course, I was like, of course, that's what it is. Um, compound everyone knows the the term um but don't doesn't think of it but yeah i mean cholesterol we think of as this this boogeyman the you know don't eat too many eggs or your cholesterol will be high or don't have too much red meat but it's a a, a, a essential biomolecule it keeps your cell walls from getting too hard you know and uh and we use it in all sorts of different things. It's just a problem if you eat way too much of it and there's different forms and all that kind of thing that your your medical doctor, your physician would tell you. But uh, it's it maybe not the best one from an a, a environmental tracer perspective because it is produced by all uh, animals, uh, whereas some can be a little bit more specific. So they can be uh, found only in higher mammals, um, and in some environments, there just may not be mammals. So if you go to the Arctic, there's not a lot of large mammals walking around. There's not huge like fields of cows or any of those sorts of things. So it could tell you about human presence or, or at least the, the good chance that there were humans there. Others can be found to, like in birds. Did, did Matt talk about steriles? When he was on the episode, or I can't remember if he did. Anything. May have alluded to them in, in terms of without going into much detail and how he was tracking them, but basically. You know, the bird colonies and the ebb and flow of the bird colonies uh, through time were able to be tracked uh, through um, uh, various steriles in the uh, lake sediments. Yeah. Um, just because there'd be no other sources on these very isolated islands other than the birds themselves. Um, and when they exactly. left, the source left. So, yep. so again, um, you know, 
very widely distributed and a very um, broad class of um, uh, compounds. But depending on the situation and the, the way that you tailor the question, uh, can be able to get some very specific details about what is going on in, in, in the ecosystems, depending on where you take your core. Yep, exactly. And that's the list. All right. We're all experts now. Okay, so all in all, we've talked about a fairly diverse list of chemicals um, and with a variety of paleolimnological applications. Um, and we've like rattled off a couple of them as we went. Um, obvious one uh, for the more recent contaminants is uh, they provide a tool to track the effectiveness of bands or um, the onset of, you know, I guess in many ways, the modern era in a particular location, um, or um, conversely, can be some of them can be used to track early civilizations in terms of uh, impacts from gold mining, has been associated with Romans and uh, a variety of other, of other um, I guess, ancient or pre, you know, pre-European. Yeah, yeah depending de- depending where you are in the world in terms of I guess what the how ancient you're talking about really would be. Yeah, because there's some really interesting work on uh, on gold or on uh, mercury uh, contamination in pre-European contact in the New World, New World in, in air quotes, um, South America, because um, they had obviously vast uh, advanced civilizations that included accessing some of these precious resources. And, uh, and so there's some really interesting work that's been done on, on that history, reconstructing civilization level history from, from the sediments using that kind of technique. Really cool. We referred, um, in passing to being able to track the impacts of flooding for, um, uh, hydroelectric dams. Um, talked a little bit about that, um, in terms of, you know, like the work that was done in the sixties and seventies in Canada, but, um, again, taking our Canadian blinkers off, I m- imagine this is one where there's going to be a lot of interest elsewhere in the world. When you think of like the Three Gorges Dam in like, when was that? In, Huge. Yeah. Like 2000-ish, I guess, is when the big uh, flooding was done for that. So it's only like 20 years mm-hmm. ago now. Um, and um, uh, that's the main one that I know, but I know there's been a, a, a number of them in that region of the world. So... Uh, going forward, looking at the long-term impact um, related to methylization of mercury um, downstream of those dams is going to be a have a lot of questions that can be answered by paleo as we go forward. Yeah, well, not, not only that, like, well, it just, just came to my mind that in North America, we're actually breaking more dams than we're building dams because a lot of them have come to the end of their life cycle and and all of these things those dams one of the like big things about reservoirs is that sediment builds up more in them that's why we can't keep using them because they've filled up above the like generating capacity so there is a lot of potential contaminants that's that's locked in the sediments of some of these soon to be decommissioned dam locations in North America uh, that that may have to be dealt with or at least considered from a lot of these different contaminant perspectives. But in other parts of the world, they are building more dams um, for generation, including in, in definitely in China. Um, so yeah, th- that's a dual 
component. Um, and I guess the PAHs would be the most widely applicable, but also in many ways the most nuanced. Um, you know, we mentioned it in, in the segment, but um, in terms of headlines in Canada right now, I think you're most likely to encounter them uh, in oil sand related stuff. Um, but uh, you mentioned um, uh, Frenchman's Bay in Pickering, Ontario is like a real hot spot for these as well. And I was caught, caught off guard by that. Because you, because it's in your back, your old former backyard, yeah, so, uh, yeah. I mean, anywhere, anywhere. There's lots of vehicles. There's going to be a lot of burning and incomplete burning of materials, and that's going to put contamination. But and a huge source. And I, I only was reading about this more for a class because I'm, I'm teaching a course on urban physical geography, and I was talking about water quality. And like the main source in urban areas is um, uh, uh, pavement sealing. So if you put that sealant coating on your driveway or your parking lot, makes um, it look nice. You're putting in enormous amounts of PAHs, like a lot. I'm not sure where the study was from, but it was they tracked in wastewater, sewage water, or like uh, stormwater, uh, and calculated to the area was 10 kilos of the 16 priority PAHs per hectare. That's the PAHs, not not the applicant. That's contaminants. Per hectare, a huge number. Wow. Um, and talking about um, the organic compounds, just one of the key points from them is the commonality of their largely halogenated compounds, and that is what makes them so tough and resistant. That's leading to their persistence. And I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's just a case of the same same thing. Very short-term interest from a paleo perspective, but a much broader interest in terms of just human and eco ecosystem health, I guess. Now the yep, sediments are sure. like archiving this stuff as it's uh, deposited all over the place. Yeah, both atmospherically, but also locally. Yep, uh, just a great example of, of the lake being a, a great depositional environment to reconstruct a lot of different stuff at different scales. There we go. Yeah. I don't know. Got any further reflections on your time pretending to, uh, in the proximity of real organic chemists as opposed to being pretending really. to be one on the internet? Uh, make sure... Take, you know, it, because it, I went as a postdoc and, and it was in like my second postdoc. So I certainly had done a lot of research. And it was, you know, you got to check your ego a little bit at the door because you really don't know what you're doing. I hadn't done any organic chemistry since on undergrad, really. And, uh, and, but it was fun when you are willing to learn and listen. And definitely it's a, it's a technique that, you need to have that institutional knowledge to, I mean, you kind of need that anywhere, but it really is important to have someone who can can show you how to do it right. And, and otherwise you'd be incredibly frustrated and waste a huge amount of money because stuff is expensive. And uh, and if you have that, I think I really enjoyed it. I, I like the persnicketiness of it. Like it needs to be clean. It needs to be accurate. You know, you... you Oh, oh, that's good enough. You can't say that in an organic chemistry kind of perspective. You know, it, things are measured it, with with things that get down to like the the tenth of the milliliter kind of 
ranges or, or more. So yeah, it's, it's a very different world. And I, I really did uh, enjoy a fairly short amount of time there. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. Cool means. So I guess I'm done with uh, our, our top of the pops countdown for today. Yep. Sounds good. It was really a countdown. Eh? It seems like <laughs> we just kept going over the same list, but but that's kind of, I don't know. I thought it was, I actually thought it was uh, an interesting difference and, and a really, it's a good way to kind of compare and transition our small picture arc from the bio indicators. And we'll, we'll continue on with things that are sort of cross the border with chemistry and, and maybe a little more familiar to the, the, the folks who are listening that, that have more of a bio background because they're often being used to, to consider changes in, in biology and changes in the ecosystem that can impact biology. Yeah. And you know, um, from experience, uh, you know, you don't have to be an expert in something to collaborate with someone who is and want to be able to speak their language. So absolutely, um, that's not. kind of that's the point a where we're point. at. Or you may want to go and do it yourself at some point. And that you know, too. You, you may you may think that's a cool thing to add to your toolbox, and and this may, hopefully will will make it seem that uh, maybe you could pr- propose doing that or break down that barrier and jump in because it can be really neat. All right. So uh, once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleoluminology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, please send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo, and there's only one A in paleo. All of our past episodes and some of the corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found on our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca but really uh, you can just find that website through our Twitter page yeah and if you're so inclined you can give us a rating or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts those five star ratings would be great but to be honest we don't really care all that much we're just doing this for fun yes sporadically for fun and that's it for now Uh, Join us again next time as we continue to explore paleoluminology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.